Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take their freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. As you can tell, we've kind of uh, been a little bit short-staffed here the last few weeks. So I just want to go out first thing and let you know that we are looking to add one or maybe two new panelists to the list. Um, in addition, we're also changing the recording time and hopefully we'll free things up for uh, some of our regular panelists that are already on the show. But uh, if you have recommendations or would like to volunteer to be on the show, um, just send a tweet to at Ruby Freelancers and uh, we'll check it out and we'll make the best selection we can to hopefully have a little bit more discussion on these shows. So I, I'm, I'm torn between asking how things are going and just jumping right into the topic. So... Uh, how are things going, Eric? Good. I'm tired, but good. Doing a lot of working on a lot of other projects right now, and kind of kind of getting out of my comfort zone quite a bit on things, which is good, especially the projects I'm working on because they should be pretty pretty good things over the next year or so. But it's you know you kind of get scared and kind of have to pull back every now and then. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've been working a lot on my marketing and things, and it's keeping me busy. But yeah, you know, I know you have that big client and stuff going too, so. Well, let's get into the topic here. We've got, um, basically, I, I wrote in the calendar, big company layoffs, should I worry? And where it came from was there was somebody on Twitter. His handle is ThatRD. Um, his name is Ryan, I'm not even going to try, D-L-U-G-O-S-Z. Anyway, he he tweeted, next week on the Ruby Freelancer Show, how the flood of unemployed living social developers may impact your rates and how to prevent it. Um, there was a little bit of discussion about what we were talking about next. And uh, so he was saying, well, Living Social is laying off a bunch of people and they're all going to be unemployed. And so, you know, uh, how does that impact your rates? How do you keep it from impacting your rates? Things like that. And I'm not sure sure if he was totally serious, but it's something that I thought would be interesting to talk about. So um, first off, I'm wondering, does a, a higher number of unemployed Rubyists really affect your rate? I mean, I, I think it could. You have to, it's a couple steps away. I don't think it like directly affects your rate because your rate is kind of the value you're offering to a client. So your value doesn't change. Um, I mean, this is basically an economic change where there's a larger supply. So you might have to compete more, which means that if you do lower your rate to, you know, that's how you're going to compete with these new uh, developers then yes, it could affect your rate that way. But it that's more of kind of your business processes and how you're handling, you know, you're not getting projects. Like, do you handle it by dropping your rates? Do you handle it by cutting scope? Or do you handle it by like maybe marketing more and just having a better choice of projects? So I don't, I don't think having a larger supply of developers that can do freelance stuff is going to directly affect your rate, but there's a potential that it will. Yeah, that's kind of 
where I was at, I mostly I mostly have to say it's not really going to affect my rate, at least not immediately. Um, I mean, these people are coming coming out of Living Social, and um, I think a lot of them aren't really looking to go freelance. And I've heard I've heard uh, employed uh, Rubius actually say something to the effect of, "Well, if I ever get laid off, I'll just go find a contract until I can get another job." Like you just walk into Kmart and pick one up. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the thing, like a layoff, especially like a significant size employer, it's going to make competition a bit more difficult, but that's kind of, it's kind of hard, hard phrase. It's kind of for like the low end, like these are people who yesterday were an employee and now they're a freelancer. So unless they have kind of a brand name or like people have been wanting to hire them as soon as they disappeared from the company, they're going to have to scale up their marketing or kind of start talking to people and all that. So they're not going to directly compete with like someone who's been established freelancing for a couple of years. Um, it's just, it's kind of a different market there. Now, if you give like the, you know, the ex-employee a couple of years to kind of get on their feet and all that, then yeah, it's going to be a, a direct competitor, but you know, that may or may not affect you. And who knows if, like you said, if they want to jump back into employment as soon as possible, they're not going to be around in the long term. Yeah, that that's another point. So the the first point was, you know, immediately no because like you said they have to ramp up their marketing. They have to get the engine going. They have to they have to feed the business enough to where it can kind of self-sustain. And then yeah, in the long run, you know, I think there may be a few of them that wind up being able to go freelance and make it work. It seems like there's a lot of work out there and so what where this really comes in is how much that dwindles the supply of work. And, um, you know, and this is the supply and demand again, and whether or not I'm competing over the same clients that they are. And, and then even then, if, if some new Rubyist comes onto the scene and, you know, starts a freelance business, I, I still don't know that it's, it's that big a deal because the only reason it's going to affect my rates is if they're offering lower than I am and I'm competing right. with them. Yeah. And then if you're, like I said, if you're competing only on price, which is a bad thing to do in general, then yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's the idea. If you have a thousand people selling a stick of gum for one cent cheaper than you, people are going to buy that stick of gum because it's the exact same stick you sell. And so you have to lower your price. But I mean, developers and software and, you know, applications are not sticks of gum. Like there's almost no way to really compare them apples to apples. So it's, if you only dif differentiate on price, then it could. But if you kind of differentiate on anything else, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, is an experienced freelancer versus an inexperienced freelancer, you are competing on more than just price. And you're competing on more than just your ability to write code. You, you know, you're competing on, on your ability to actually handle a client and make them happy. And so you can actually communicate to them, look, I've been doing this a long time. And I have these um, systems already set up. So that, you know, when, when you have a problem, when you have a new feature you want when you have any of these things that are common on a freelance project, I already know how to handle them. And so you're, you're basically offering a higher level of experience, not just a higher level of experience necessarily with the code or the problem that they want to solve. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of like, like I was saying, like if, if you're a freelancer and you kind of wrap up all your client projects and you're kind of like have no work, during that time, you know, there's a bit of time you have to kind of scale up your marketing and kind of get back into attracting clients. And that for me, it takes maybe a month, maybe two months of solid work, you know, and I know what I'm doing. I have all of the administrative stuff already kind of handled. 
if you're you know a fresh employee starting a new company, it's going to take you way longer than that. You know, with with very few exceptions, like you, they have to kind of scale up, and you know, it's going to take them two months, three months. It could even take six months to kind of get their first real client. And you know, if you're a freelancer now, like think back to when you started and how long it took you to get to where stuff's kind of stable and you're actually you know competing against other freelancers. I mean, it's the same thing if you're a fresh employee. Yeah, I'm. I'm, and and when I was a fresh employee or a freshly laid off employee, I that's exactly what happened with me. I mean, there was a local company that uh, subcontracted some work to me, and I gave them a what what I now realize is a killer rate. I mean, they, they didn't even think twice about hiring me as a subcontractor because my rate was so low. And um, you know, I worked for them for a few months, and then I finally got what I would consider a real client. I'm doing doing air quotes here, but you know, somebody that hired me directly to do work for them. And yeah, I mean, it did. It took me two or three months. Let's say I got laid off in September. I got that client in November. I still didn't know what I was doing really for another, you know, handful of months. It was just, you know, I had money coming in and, you know, I could deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of mine. I think it was about six months. Like I got, I got a project right away or a couple of them because I actually contracted back to my previous employer. And after that, I kind of got my first real freelance client, but I think it took about six or eight months before I was making a stable income. But the other side was I was, you know, I've done rails for years at that point and I was actually billing out for doing PHP work. So I, even though the income was stable, I wasn't actually doing what I wanted to do and what I was best equipped to do. And I think it took about a year or maybe a year and a half before I was actually only doing rail stuff. And so like I had to go through a couple transition periods myself and, you know, it, I think everyone's going to have to do this, especially if, you know, if there's a big layoff, I mean, I'm just looking at a number here, like say there's 400 new Rails developers on the market, you know, ex-employees, they're all going to be competing for the very same projects. You know, they're basically new freelancer, different levels of Rails experience, but they're going to have kind of comparable business experience, kind of comparable selling themselves to a client experience. So they're actually going to be competing kind of in their own little bubble for the same projects, whereas if established freelancers are kind of going to be you know, in a different market where they're already working and already have all their stuff set up. And I mean, there's going to be some exceptions, like some people might have been freelancing before and kind of jump into the big market right away and all that. But in general, I kind of think of them as almost different markets at first. Yeah, I think that's mostly true. I mean, if I had been laid off and I'd had some friends that needed code work done and, you know, I, it would be, it would have been pretty easy to kind of fall into that. But um, other than that, if if you don't have an established like you know like we were saying you don't have an established marketing plan you don't have uh, clients that you can go to or a former employer that you can uh, contract back to you really are kind of in a place where you're going to be um, I don't want to say scraping the bottom of the barrel but you're going to be looking in the same places as everybody else because people aren't coming to you so you've got to go to them and so you're going to be going to the job boards you're going to be going to all of these different places and and just like you said so is everybody else. Um, yeah. Like I know, I know a few developers that kind of got stuck on the Elance, um, rent a code or all those kind of low end job board sites. And that's, they're making an income there, but they're hating it. I mean, they're making, you know, a fifth, maybe even a 10th of what they actually should be in the open market. And they just, they can't get out of it. Like they're, they have to keep working in there to make, you know, to pay their bills and make the income, but they can't get enough time to kind of, 
get their marketing scaled up to kind of get out into the more open market. And I mean, a couple of them emailed me for advice and it's, there's not really much you can really say or do. And that's the other thing. If, if you go kind of the really low end route, you could actually get stuck in a long-term project with a client where you're not making enough. You're in kind of a, a, a bad environment, maybe with a bad team and you're not going to be able to get out. I right. mean, it's basically like employment without all the quote security around it. Yeah. So you're, you're that uh, rat in a wheel, so to speak. And you, you have to spend all your time making the wheel turn and you don't have time to actually go out and, you know, find, find a bigger wheel. The other thing that I, I really want to point out, and I kind of alluded to this before, was that um, most of these people are still conditioned to the, I have to have a, a job with a company. And so, you know, while some of them think, well, I may go do freelance in the interim until I find the job I want, some of them probably aren't in a position, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, and uh, they really aren't in a position, even with the severance, to go too long without finding another job. And they're much more accustomed to finding another job than they are to finding a client. And so even if there are, you know, several hundred developers that Living Social is laid off, laying off, I think a lot of the rest of the market, um, employee market, will absorb a lot of those people. And it's just the people who either want to go out on their own or can't find the job they want and fall into freelancing somehow are really going to compete. And so I'm, I'm thinking that that's a reasonably low percentage of people that we really actually have to worry about coming in and competing with us if, if uh, that becomes an issue at all. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Not everyone can do freelancing and not everyone can do business. And then I don't mean that in that they don't have the skills. I mean, the personality's not there. Uh, they don't like working that way, all that stuff. I mean, my wife right now is not good at doing a business because she likes a lot of the social aspect. And so working at a larger company is a good thing for her because she can work with coworkers. She has a team she can depend on and all that. And some people need that sort of support. I mean, I like I've said before on the show, like I probably won't be hiring employees for it at all or for a long time just because I don't actually work good in kind of the, you know, the, the manager employee relationship. Like I work good with peer stuff and I work good as, you know, I'm helping a team, but that's kind of just how I work and how I function right now. Yeah. And, and I've seen that as well, not necessarily always for the social reasons, but I know people that are perfectly happy in their job and they would never consider freelancing just because, you know, they, they like the environment that they're in. Um, you know, they, they like the company they work for. They like, you know, whatever it is about their job that they like. The other thing is, is, you know, as you said, you know, some people either aren't good at business or they don't have, you know, some people don't have the skill set. though. I think just about anybody can learn to do that. In a lot of cases, they just don't want to work that hard. Um, and what I mean is, is in, in a freelance business, you know, you have to go and figure out your own benefits. You have to go figure out uh, withholding all your taxes, what you can deduct, what you can't. You're probably going to wind up paying somebody to do your bookkeeping, you know, paying somebody to manage all this stuff, file your taxes, what have you. I mean, all the stuff that the business kind of takes care of for you in the sense that they withhold your taxes, they buy your health insurance, they, uh, you know, they do all the, the money munging and all you do is collect a check and then, you know, get a tax return every year. Well, and I mean, even simpler than that. I mean, you know, the business makes sure you have electricity going to your laptop and make sure that you have air conditioning or a heater. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of 
simple environment things that, you know, you don't really realize. And when you go freelance, you have to consider it. I mean, you can, you know, if you do a home office, yeah, some of it's already handled. But if you don't do a home office, like where are you going to work? You're going to be at a coffee shop. You got to get co-working space. You're going to rent your own office. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's some of them aren't hard decisions to make, but it's there's thousands of them. And, you know, if you're not used to that kind of environment, it can kind of be shocking. Yeah. And by the same token, you mentioned power to your machine or whatever, but you actually have to buy a machine, you know. Um, I, I know a lot of folks that they do most of their personal stuff on the machine that is furnished to them by their employer. And so they never go buy the laptop or buy the, the desktop machine at their home, you know, and, and if they do, they don't use it that often because it's usually a nicer machine that they've been provided by their employer. And so again, I mean, it's, it's another expense. It's another thing to worry about. Which one do I get? Do I really need four gig of RAM or do I need eight? Do I need 16? It'd be nice to have 16, but do I need it? And yeah, I mean, all of these different decisions and, uh, you know, and then there is all the extra work that you have to do just to make your business run. So, and if you're not good with money, if you're not good with keeping track of what you're spending, I mean, that can get you into real trouble too. And some people are, are worried that they don't have the discipline to take care of that either. So anyway, it's it's really it's really kind of an interesting uh, discussion and problem. But yeah, I, I'm I'm just not convinced that there are going to be that many people that come out of a living social or group on layoff or you know name your large rails company that are really going to come out and um, compete in the the freelancing space. I mean, th- there's one topic I want to kind of get into if if we can wrap this one up. Yeah, go ahead. So. Kind of the whole idea of this topic is, you know, should you worry about, you know, a flood of new developers coming in? The other way to look at it is that's actually an opportunity for established freelancers. I mean, if you have 400 people who know Rails, know the technical side and can produce that don't have a job or aren't going to, don't know if they can start freelancing, they make really good subcontractors. I mean, if you have, if you have the client side, like managing the client, getting the projects down, you can hire some of these people, even if it's an interim solution while they're looking for another job, and you can get some really skilled help and actually help out your business. And so for me, I see like, yeah, maybe 5-10% of them might become freelancers and might compete, but there's probably a larger percent that are actually willing to do subcontracting or uh, moonlighting or stuff on the side that you could bring on as a subcontractor to kind of help get your client projects going faster. Yeah, and the the other end of that is that um, if they don't have to take on some of the overhead, like managing the client or things like that, and all they have to really do is, you know, basically do more or less the employee stuff, plus a little bit of overhead to run their own subcontracting business, if you can provide them enough work at, at a reasonable enough rate, they may not go back and you may be able to take advantage of that relationship for a long time. Um, giving them exactly what they want and they need, and at the same time benefiting your business on a longer term than just one project. So I really do like that uh, that idea. Yeah, and I mean, most people who get laid off are going to get reabsorbed into the workforce somewhere, sometime. Uh, especially, you know, highly skilled people like developers. I mean, you might not they might not get back in as like a Ruby or Rails developer. They might go to like Java or JavaScript or something else, kind of not the exact same. Um, job title they had but you know it's a highly skilled workforce they're gonna be working somewhere you know it's mostly for a freelancer i think you just have to concern yourself with you know kind of waiting it out seeing what happens you know if there's an opportunity like i said like you know to hire someone as a subcontractor or you know if you're taking on employees 
you know, look for those opportunities and also kind of just watch yourself and make sure you don't panic and drop your rate and try to compete with them or, you know, do any of these things that kind of, you know, you hear about like if, you know, the economy is crashing, you know, another dot-com bubble is appearing and all that stuff. Like try to, try to watch for that stuff, but just make, you know, look at it from the long term and see if this is actually just, you know, panic and mania or if it actually is a longer term trend. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a, a really good point And that is, is that more programmers on the market really shouldn't impact your rates. And and what I mean by that is, you know, you shouldn't be lowering, lowering your rate because um, all of a sudden there are more people out there. You should be lowering, lowering your rate to capture a contract that you really need or, you know, lowering your rate because, you know, you have to make some compromise uh, to benefit the business in one way or another. So, for example, if you've hit a lean time and you're kind of reaching the end of your savings and you still can't find work at, at whatever rate, but you can find work at maybe a slightly lower rate, that's when you, you know, you think about lowering rate, you're lowering your rate. Or if, if somebody asks you to compromise on your rate one way or another and you, you deem that to be the right move, then you do it. You don't do it because it looks like there are going to be more developers out there on the market. Yeah, and I don't do this very often, but I mean, I'll adjust my rate if I'm doing something that's not going to deliver as much value to the customer. So like, say they want me to work in a technology exclusively that I don't know that well. So I'm not like, you know, as advanced in Rails as I am in you know, we'll say Java, for example, you know, then I might lower my rate for Java. I mean, but at the same time is I would have to even want that project only if there's no Rails projects at my main rate or even Rails projects at a lower rate. And so I don't see that happening too much. And if you think about it from like, what is it, the macroeconomic point of view, it's basically you're getting, the market's getting more of a supply. And the only way that that's going to affect prices is if all of these new suppliers are what's the right term? Oh, substitutes of each other. So, you know, like I said in the beginning, if developer A and developer A's code is exactly the same as developer B and developer B's code, you know, then they could be substituted they're interchangeable parts. But, you know, for the most part, software and developers and client projects are not interchangeable like that. They're not going to be identical. And so, you know, we're kind of each, we're each little unique snowflakes when it comes to this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think some people see this kind of thing and they start to panic, and I really just want to head that off, if at all possible. And uh, the other thing is, is just I thought it was is just an interesting thing because overall the point of view from freelancing is where's the risk, and and this isn't something that that has risk. And uh, people have this idea about freelancing that it's it's higher risk, and and therefore higher reward. But I I really don't see it that way. I mean, you know, you you build in whatever you build in to, to avert the risk. And then when things like this come up, you can um, accurately evaluate it and decide where the risk is. But uh, in this case, I really just don't, I just don't see it there. So are there any other pieces of advice that you would give to people if they are worried about this or if they've been um, working in maybe the the lower end of freelancing where some of these folks might come in? Well, if you're working kind of in the lower end or a lot of like contracting type stuff, uh, especially if it's a shorter term contract that you keep picking up, um, and by contract, I mean where you're basically doing staff augmentation or you're just, you know, a cog in a larger project. In those cases, like you might have some competition and I would just kind of suggest you try to move to a larger market. Like, you know, 
bump up your marketing, bump up your skills, try to pick up, you know, non-technical, non-developer skills, you know, because if you're seen as a higher value, because, you know, say you can give speeches to, you know, actual a business audience and you can actually communicate effectively, you're not going to be competing in kind of this lower end market. And you would actually probably pick up larger projects or higher quality projects. And, you know, that would affect your rate and other things, but you would kind of move away from the market where a lot of the new freelancers would start in. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think the first thing that came to mind when I asked the question was raise your rates, but effectively what I was thinking was what you just said in the, you know, move to a, a market, a different market. And, uh, you know, raising your rates is definitely part of that, but it doesn't encompass the entire thing. Yeah. I mean, I say raising the rates is kind of the end effect. I mean, yeah. anyone can raise the rates. Like I can bump my rate up a thousand times. I won't get it, but I can do it. You have to actually have justification and where that comes from is you know, showing the business value and all that stuff. And so raising the rates kind of like, you know, the last, it's like the symptom of what happened and what's really happening is you're increasing the value for the clients and that's letting you raise your rates effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing is, is you can, um, if you can make the time, then you can start to build that marketing funnel to get you into that new market. You can start learning whatever skills or whatever that you need in order to move up into that new market. Or maybe you already have the skills and you just, you know, need to find a client that, that will, you know, get you there. But whatever it is, you know, sit down and really think about, you know, where you're at and where you want to be and uh, what the path is to get there. And if you have specific questions about that, I mean, we, we love to hear about those because then we can uh, cover those in the show and, and help you move along to the next level. I think there's one last thing I want to cover. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, you know, there's a big company layoff, a lot of developers hitting the market, you know, should you worry? I, I like, we, like we said, I don't think you should worry about your rates. And I don't, depending on where you're at, you probably won't have to worry about the competition. What I, what I would actually not worry, but kind of take a step back and think about is if this company is going under, how is that going to affect the economy? You know, if three large tech companies that employ a lot of developers are going under or, you know, getting acquired or any of that stuff, how is that going to affect the landscape? I mean, one thing I like to think about, I mean, GitHub's a great company. They're doing great. They have a lot of great people. But what if GitHub went out of business tomorrow? Like, what would happen? How would things be affected? How would the employment market be affected? How would, you know, the overall economy be affected? It's good just to kind of think about that and kind of do like some what if stuff to see what could happen and kind of watch for it. I mean, I've watched for these kind of little, you know, blips and kind of see if there's some kind of trend going on because this, I mean, this could be like, you know, the dot-com crash too. It might not be, it probably isn't, but this could be. And if you want to stay in business, you need to kind of think about that and set yourself up for it. And so if you, if you are really worried about this sort of thing happening, maybe that means you start trying to take on more clients now because there's a lot of work now. You can maybe pick up some stuff, maybe build up your savings account. So instead of being, say, six months, it's now 12 months. Or maybe you try to cross train in a different skill. Like maybe you want to look up, you know, doing some automation in Microsoft Office or something like that. That's going to be used more if there's like a recession or a depression. Um, but that's what I would actually recommend is look at kind of a bigger picture and see if there's any kind of areas that could actually trickle out and affect your business at a larger scale. Yeah. And we, we talked about a lot of some, a lot of the things that you can do in our episode on uh, managing risk, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Um, one other area that came to mind while you were talking was not just, you know, of the overall economics of, of a company going under. And, uh, you know, I might come back to that because I have another thought about that now that I mention it too. But um, the local economy is something to think about too. I mean, I have a lot of contacts here in Utah. And if one of the major tech companies uh, that does Ruby on Rails went out of business here, it might affect my prospects of finding prospects just in my local area. Because some clients like to have somebody that they can um, basically call up and say, hey, let's go get lunch and uh, talk things through with. And so um, the local areas where Living Social has offices might be impacted. You know, Washington, D.C., I think they have one in Portland or the Portland area, Seattle area. You know, so so those those local markets might get saturated for a little bit until um, those people get reabsorbed back into the economy, because people out there will know that there are skilled people out here that I can hire that may be at varying lab, uh, levels of desperation to find work to get them through while they find another job. The other thing is, is you were talking about the economic impact of of one of the major employers going under, or you know. Uh, going out of business and like living social doesn't provide a service that people really depend on to live or depend on to, to do what they do, but GitHub does. And so um, the other consideration that, that came to mind was not just in the people that would come onto the market and GitHub has some really smart and skilled people, but uh, you know, what, what would the impact be if their service went away and uh you know how does that affect things and so you can think about that when you're um measuring risk as well yeah and i mean that's something that i i harp on a lot is you know if you depend on other services or you know other pieces of software or other companies you know you need to be very careful cuz you're sharing in their risk like i have stuff at rackspace for example and i basically share in rackspace's risk if rackspace goes down like they they have a couple times that affects me directly. It affects my stuff. Um, I I use GitHub, but I don't have a paid GitHub account. I put all my Git stuff on a server I control that's mirrored off and all that. So if GitHub goes out of business, it yeah, it would affect me. Like I wouldn't be able to find a lot of stuff, and it'd take me a bit to kind of get you know reacquainted with stuff. But most of my code is sitting somewhere else, and you know with Git, it's really easy to do that. But that's just kind of an example. Yeah, absolutely. But again, that that that's not really super pertinent to our discussion. I just mentioned it because it was of interest to me. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, ultimately, I think I think our conclusion on this is you know there's not a whole lot to worry about unless you're directly in the market that uh, new people would be competing in, and even then, you know, it's probably a short term thing. Um, and if you're if you're kind of at the level that uh, I think Eric and I are at. You know, there aren't too many people at these companies that are going to come out of the gate and be able to compete directly with you for uh, projects. And another thing to think about is, I mean, a company laying people off, I mean, by the time you hear about it, it's already happened. It's completely out of your control. So if you like worry about it, that you're worrying about stuff that you have no control over and that's going to actually affect you psychologically and stuff. It's better, like I said, if you know that happens, evaluate it, you know, see if there's an opportunity or a risk, and just make a decision about what you need to do. But you have to be careful not to let kind of the panic and worry emotions to kind of take over and kind of guide your decisions that way. Yep. Do you have anything else to add on this? I know it's going to be a little bit of a short episode, but um, I'm not sure if I have any other directions that we can really run with this particular topic. No, I mean, it's not really like... 
don't worry about it if you can. If you're gonna be competing, like if you're in that low end market, then you know, try to get above it, which is kind of just good advice to do in general. And, you know, if you can take advantage of that there's people that actually need work, need some some kind of stopgap employment, you know, if you could take advantage of that and help them out, that might be a good thing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into the picks then. What are your picks, Eric? Okay. So I got two. Um, one is a presentation by Chris Williams from um, JSConf EU 2012. Uh, it's a it's a short presentation. It's really interesting. Um, it's on YouTube, so you can get to it pretty easily. I'll put a link in the show notes, but I watched it a couple hours ago and was really impressed by it. Um, the second pick is because me and Chuck on the pre-show were talking about some things we were doing. Um, this one is a post on the duct tape marketing blog uh, called How to Create a Co- Total Content System. Basically, it talks about kind of making, figuring out like and planning ahead, like what kind of content you're going to be building, how you're going to build it, all that stuff. And the the big things I got out of it was basically having like an editorial calendar. So like, you know, if you, you say you're starting 2013 again, you only know, say January, I'm going to focus on this topic. February, I'm going to focus on this topic you know, March is this other one. And also kind of thinking out, like you have these topics, but how are you going to actually, you know, create the content? Like, are you going to do blog posts? Are you going to do a podcast? Going to do a screencast? That sort of thing. But it's really interesting because I've planned out my content stuff, you know, ad hoc here and there. And I always like the idea of having a plan so I kind of know where I'm going and kind of, you know, I'm not just like every Monday panicking because I should write a blog post this week. So it's a, it's a good post. It's a lot more detailed than what I'm saying here. But, um, you know, if you are trying to get some marketing going and you're having a hard time kind of building a system around it or understanding how it ties together, um, I'd highly recommend doing this. It shouldn't take too long to kind of think about it and plan it out for yourself. Yeah, I like that. Really like that. All right. Well, I've got a couple of picks here. The first one that I'm going to put in is uh, videohive.net. It's basically video effects that you can purchase for either Apple Motion or um, for uh, Adobe After Effects. I actually own them both. And uh, what's nice about it is um, I've been working with this marketing guy and we're, we're actually talking about doing more than just, you know, helping each other out with tech stuff and marketing stuff and trading. But um, they one of the things that he recommended to me was that uh, I enhance my video in in certain ways. I have a video up on RailsRampUp.com, um, which is the course I'm teaching now. Registration's closed, so you know I don't feel terrible like I'm pushing a product or anything. But anyway, the they have these logo um, effects so that it can like come in in different ways. So if you see one of my videos. And it has some cool effect that brings the logo in or does some other effect on the screen. Just think of me as, as like a video editing expert and, uh, and just forget that I mentioned that I got it off of videohive.net. Um, most of them are about eight to $15. The only thing that I ran into that I was a little bit upset about was that, uh, and this is totally my fault, but it, it was something that bothered me a little bit. I bought an effect for bringing a logo in and it looked really cool. And I, I tried to pull it into Adobe After Effects. And what happened was it turned out that it needed a plugin uh, for After Effects. And so I went and I found the plugin online and it was like $400. And, you know, I probably would have wound up paying somebody that much to make the, the logo effect. But I wasn't really willing to, to spring for this, um, uh, this effect um, plugin. 
So I just went back on and in the list, it actually says whether or not it requires a plugin. So I just found one that I liked that said, you know, requires plugins. No. And uh, that worked just fine. Um, pulled it in, put my logo in it. You know, it took me all of like 10 minutes to watch the little video that the guy put in that explained how to, how to use his, his effect. And uh, anyway, it's, it's going to be in the, in all of the rails ramp up videos now. Um, this little thing that brings my logo in the way that I like. So I really, really like that. And um, they also have another uh, website that has like short um, music segments and and things so, th- so that you can basically like have something if it like swings around and whips around and, and then stops in place, they have uh, sound effects that can kind of go with some of that. So um, or or music that'll go with it too. So I really like that as well. And so, uh, yeah, you can go to videohive.net and I think it's audiojungle.net. I'll put links to that in the show notes. Yeah, I've actually used um, ThemeForest, which is website templates. And I actually found, what is it? Uh, Photodune, which is their stock photography. Mm-hmm. I found that to be pretty good because iStock photo prices are just outrageous now. And I mean, I was looking for stock photo stuff for just like blog posts. So it's like very low, you know, low value things. And I wasn't willing to pay like $35 a blog post just for a kind of stock image. So I actually used quite a bit on Photodune, kind of found a couple images and works pretty good. Yeah, I I looked at Photodune too. The thing that I like about them over iStock Photo, besides the difference in price, is that they seem to have a lot more of the photos that aren't the, you know, man in suit with paste on smile doing whatever it is that I searched for. Um, they, they seem to have a lot more variety of the other stuff. And yeah, so a woman in headset smiling at camera. Yeah. Sitting in front of computer. Yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, those, those just kind of drive me crazy. Cause it's like, who's going to use this? You know, nobody, nobody wants to see that on, on your, you know, whatever it is, your, it, it just makes it feel too commercial and I'd rather have it feel more organic. And so in a lot of cases, you know, yeah, it really fits. And I really, really liked uh, some of the quality with it. Um, they do offer kind of the same um, variety and size of the image and things like that. So um, definitely worth checking out there. Um, it looks like they're all owned by the same company, Envato. But yeah, yeah they, they run um, Freelance Switch and you know quite a few other properties. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's that's why some of these are so nice. Um, yeah, I haven't loved everything I found on Theme Forest, but um, Video Hive has been fun to play with, and and I'm definitely going to be digging into Audio Jungle to see what I can find that's not too expensive. But I liked that the pricing was something where I could just go and buy it, try it, play with it. And the one thing that didn't work out for me, well, I was out ten bucks, and I don't feel terrible about that. So. Anyway, those are my picks. Um, next week we're going to be talking to uh, Farnoosh Brock. She's the person behind prolificliving.com, I think. And uh, she's going to be talking to us. She gave me some excellent advice when I was first trying to market um, Rails Ramp Up on how to get the word out for it. And so we're going to be talking about that kind of stuff, how to how to uh, get the word out about a product you're launching. So uh, look forward to that next week. And uh, thanks for coming, Eric. Yeah, it's good to be here. All right, well, we'll wrap this up. And like I said, we'll catch you all next week.